This morning, if you got your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. This morning, we're going to look at verses 18 through verse 24. The title of the message this morning is, What Wonderful Grace. What Wonderful Grace. We're going to read this passage this morning. We're going to try to observe three key observations. It's a difficult passage, especially at the first reading. But I think if we slow down and we just start to look at what is happening in the passage, we'll begin to see some some clarity as we move through it. Why don't we start by reading Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through verse 24. In verse 18, the author writes, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and the tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I'm going to keep reading. We're not going to cover these verses, but let's finish the thought. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. This morning, Hebrews chapter 12, 18 through 24, we're going to look at three observations. And what we're going to try to do, normally you try to make your points equal in time, the way this outline works is that our first point is going to be 75% of the message. What we're going to see in the first three-fourths of the message today is we're going to see a contrast. We're going to examine a contrast that the author brings out by contrasting Mount Sinai with Mount Zion. And by contrasting Mount Sinai to Mount Zion, He's doing what he's been doing similarly earlier. He's going to show us the difference between the contrast of the old covenant and the new covenant, a contrast from the shadows to the substance, a contrast from the ironic priesthood to the priesthood of Jesus, a contrast from all that the old symbolizes to the new that's brought in Jesus. So we're going to look at that. We're going to examine the contrast. But once we move through the majority of that part, we're going to come into a similarity. You see, as we see the contrast, and it's going to be vivid, you're going to see a stark contrast from the observations you see about Mount Sinai. You're going to see descriptions of Mount Zion that are going to clearly help you to see the difference between the old way and the new way ushered in. But even as you look at that stark contrast, you're going to be amazed, I think, to see a similarity that exists even between the two, from the old to the new. And that similarity is going to be important for us to understand the final point, which is a mediator. Why do we need a mediator? Why do we need Christ? Why do we need a great high priest? That's where we're going this morning, a contrast, a similarity, a mediator. But we're going to start this morning by looking at a contrast. The contrast that he's giving here is between Sinai and Moriah, I mean Mount Zion. And when we look at a contrast, I saw a quote by Charles Spurgeon. He said, every good thing is enhanced in value by its opposite. Light is all the brighter to eyes that have wept in darkness. Food is all the sweeter after you've known hunger. And Zion is all the fairer because of Sinai. The contrast between free grace and law makes grace appear the more precious to minds that have known the rigor 
of the commandment. Had an interesting thing happen yesterday. I, uh, I, when I first got in my car yesterday morning, I, I noticed a whiff of something that just wasn't good. And uh, it, 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 it really grabbed me. It was one of those where you smell it and it just sort of, you're like, whoa, what is that? And I immediately was like, oh no, what is in here? I didn't know what it was, and I started to look, and I couldn't figure it out. And I was like, surely. I, I didn't know if it was something in the back. I didn't know if it was, uh, I just didn't know. I didn't know. I, I was so confused. And I kept looking, and then I found the culprit. There, there was a McDonald's chocolate milk bottle behind the driver's side of the car. And I would never embarrass one of my kids and tell you who put it there, but he's seven years old with red hair. <laughs> and, 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 and I got it out, and, and it was one of those where it was just like, take your breath away. So I couldn't deal with it right then. I got, I found something like a Clorox wipe, and I, I wiped it, and, um, and it was just there. It was rough. And so when I had to pick up the kids later in the morning, I warned them. I said, look, y'all, it's bad. And, and they got in the car, and immediately it was like, ah. And I gave them the lecture of all lectures. These are not trash cans. These are not trash cans behind these seats. I don't know why Honda put them there, because this is of no good to any parent. But, but they're there, and, but they're not for food. They're not, they're, just don't, don't touch them. They're not allowed, you can't, you're not allowed to look at it. You know, don't even think about it. Well, we got through all that. Well, throughout the day, I was trying different things. So I got back in the afternoon, and I vacuumed it out. I, I got everything, and I kept trying new things. And every once in a while, I'd be like, hey, we all go check the, uh, the back seat. So Abigail went out there a couple times. She's like, Dad, it's, I, still, I still smell it, but it's a little better. And then later in the day, I even got Will to go check it. He's like, Dad, I had the doors open. He's like, Dad, it, it's almost gone. It's almost gone. And we were so excited, but it started hitting me. And you may be thinking, why are you telling us that? Well, there is an incredible difference between a good smell and a bad smell. And sometimes you don't understand how much you enjoy a good smell until you've been in a bad smell. Now, regardless of what the contrast you want to bring out here, I want you to begin to see something. He's going to highlight the way that it was under the Sinai covenant in order for them to truly see the miracle of the new. Sometimes we lose sight of the new because we just have forgotten from where we came from. And one of the realities, you know, of the whole New Testament is that the authors of the scripture are constantly bringing us back to realize what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And if we lose sight of that, it has a great impact on our effectiveness in the present so here we go. We see this Mount Sinai, and he says in verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched. What is he doing here? I, I struggle with this right off the bat. Why don't we go to Exodus? Open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. We're going to read through a section that I think is going to really help bring Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24, in a closer way to, to you where you can see what's happening. Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 12, and you shall set limits for the people all round, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud and a mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. 
the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out or break, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to the Mount, to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. What is going on here? You have not come to this mountain. It's interesting because... We look at this passage, and as we begin to see the contrast, it's important that we really get a feel for the reality of what has happened. For you have not come to what may be touched. Here's what he's doing. He's saying, look, unlike the people of Sinai, you are not dealing with the physical. You're dealing with the spiritual. You're dealing with something different. The old was, was sort of seen by something that may be touched. It was temporary. It was a touchable nature of the old covenant that was contrasted here with spiritual realities of the new covenant. And when we look at these first descriptions of Mount Sinai, you're going to notice something, as one commentary talked about. There's, there's auditory, there's visual phenomena that, that are going to highlight the majesty and the glory of God. I think sometimes what happens is, is that when you live in an era of the, the gospel of grace, sometimes people lose sight of the holiness of God. They take it flippantly. They can have it or leave it. What we're going to see throughout this text today is that the one thing that has not changed is the holy nature of God. Some people have false dichotomies when it comes to the Old and New Testament. They make statements that are actually just not true. And, and sometimes in their effort to try to push up the grace of Jesus Christ, they lessen the majesty of Jesus Christ. They lessen the majesty of God. But notice how this touchable mountain was described. The first one he says here, it's a mountain you could touch, a blazing fire. Blazing fire that would represent the majesty and holiness of God, not just any fire. A fire, though, that would be a visual way for the people to recognize the glory of God. Uh, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 11, and you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Keep going with this because every one of these, I want you to ask yourself, how is what he's describing, how does it reflect the majesty and the holiness of God? So we got the fire. We move into the darkness. The darkness here is really interesting because you go to Deuteronomy chapter 5, and you see in verse 22 and verse 26 very vivid phrases that not only bring up fire, but they bring up darkness. In verse 22, these words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain. Out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone, gave them to me. If you move on down, you see another passage in this text that deals with the darkness. What you find so far is that you've got these visual, you, you, what they're seeing is they're seeing the fire, they're, they're seeing the fact that it's dark. 
And one thing that the author seems to be indicating here is that while the glory and the majesty of God was so clear to the people of Israel, the reality that he was yet distant from them was clear. There was a distance. It's interesting because when we go back and we think about the, the tabernacle and we think about the priest and we think about the high priest was the only one that had the ability to go in the Holy of Holies once a year. And we talked about the serious nature of that. But we talked about for all the people of Israel, there was a constant reminder of the distance that they had with God, that there was a veil, that, that, that they could not go through it. We talked about the fulfillment of the gospel, that when Jesus is hanging on the cross and then that veil in the temple literally went down into two. And it was the picture that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment. He brings about the new, that Christ ushers in a new way, that Christ is the grace by which now we have access, that now we can have boldness and confidence. Why? Because he is ushered in a way that the old could not bring. And so when he's here, what is he doing? You got to remember, it's easy to get lost in the, the, you know, miss the forest from the woods kind of thing. It's like you look at this and you go, what's going on? He's talking to people that are tempted to leave. They're tempted to go back to Judaism. And so what does he do? He says, look, let's just compare Sinai to Zion. Let's compare the old to the new. Let's compare the temporal nature of the old to the spiritual blessings of the new. Let's compare what was actually happening at Sinai that could not bring the blessings of Zion. Let's compare it. Let's look at it. It's over and over this, this author is continually reminding them that Jesus is supreme. When you look at the book of Hebrews, I think when you're done, I pray you could sit down with a piece of paper, and maybe if you're like me, you could, you could go back and look real quick if you got lost in your mind. You could remember chapter 1, chapter 2, and just look. But in every time that you look back at the text of Hebrews, you could start jotting down yet again why Jesus Christ is greater than the old way, why Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament, why Jesus Christ ushers in the new glorious way. He says darkness, um, and then gloom with a tempest um, is the next phrase. Gloom, it speaks of like darkness, foggy, weather, smoke. The tempest speaks here of a, a storm. Um, in the NIV, it says to darkness, gloom, and storm. So the, the ESV, darkness, gloom, and tempest, but the idea is... We don't like storms. Maybe you do. I mean, the older you get, they're pretty fun. You can hear the thunder. But don't you remember being a kid? Man, I was scared to death. And I, I, my dad used to joke and say, every time I fly to Atlanta, the one house I can see at 30,000 feet is our house because you got every light on in the house when I was by myself. And, and I would get scared. And, and when, that, when that thunder, I finally got over to about 29. I'm just kidding. I was about seven years old. But uh. 29 or 30, I finally could deal with the storm. But the lightning and the thunder just rattles the house. Sometimes I'll be in, laying in the bed, and the storm starts kicking in, and, I, and I'll be like, are you awake? And Ann will be like, yes. I'll be like, and a huge bolt of thunder, and I'll be like, here they come. Just count to 10. And I'll hear feet hit the steps. And here comes Ben. He's like scared out of his mind. Like, let me hide in this bed because this is horrible. Now think about this here. This is not just any storm. The darkness, the gloom, and the storm represents the majesty and the holiness of God. I want you to think about something today, friend. How are you preparing yourself to face your maker? Don't imagine for a second that this is some light endeavor. It could be today that you're here and you're thinking, I'm horrified of meeting a holy God. That may be one of the greatest blessings of thought you've ever had. You say, why is that? Why would you ever want anyone to be fearful of meeting God? Because if we don't understand the predicament of our sinfulness and the reality of his holiness, we will never see our need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And sometimes what's happened is over the years, 
People are so interested in emphasizing the love of God, they've created a God that is not holy. They've created a God of your own making. They've created a God that's almost a mushy, mamby-pamby God in the sky who is not a God of holiness, wisdom, righteousness, judgment. We can't understand the love of God until we properly understand who he is. And yet we see at Sinai, just, just think about this. You've got this fire. You've got this darkness. You've got this fogginess. You've got this, this sense of smoke. You've got this storm and the sound of a trumpet. And Exodus 19, listen to this in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Wow. The power of God. God was revealing his holiness and his majesty in this moment. And then it says, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Now think about that. A voice that came out of heaven that literally called the people to say, please, Moses, can you be the mediator of what God desires to share to us? We don't want to hear it directly from God because it's too overwhelming. <laughs> the power of God. In Deuteronomy 4, it says, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sounds of words but saw no form, there was only a voice. Deuteronomy 4, 33, did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? The power and the majesty and the holiness of God. For they could not endure the order that was given and what was the order that was given here? He speaks about, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. You think about here, you go, wait a minute, you mean to tell me if an animal goes outside of the ways in which God has prescribed that people approach him, the animal's killed. And immediately, you know, you start thinking, if animals are killed, how much more would human beings be killed? Think about all of the stories we could go around the room and say, give me examples of how the holiness of God was revealed in the Old Testament. You could talk about when someone touched the ark inappropriately. You could talk about the sons of Korah being swallowed up into the earth. You could talk about so many different instances. You could even go to the New Testament, and you could talk about Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira. You could talk about all the stories throughout the Bible that illustrate the holiness and the majesty of God. And here, even the order, I was thinking about some passages, and we're going to see this because I don't want to just save it for the end. I want you to start getting a chance to, you know, get your appetite going here about the wonder and the miracle of the gospel. In Romans chapter 3, verse 19 now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. This morning, if you're here and you're relying on your own ability to be right before a holy God, I want you to understand in, in a way of, of warning and I want to be faithful to give you a warning I think the scripture would give you. You are on shaky ground. Because here's the problem. The holiness of God that is manifested at Sinai is the very holiness that holds you accountable to keep the record that he gives in his law. I think a lot of people, I'll tell you, it's one of the privileges of being a pastor, but one of the saddest parts of being a pastor is dealing with people that come off the street and basically trying to sit down with them and love them and talk to them and empathize with them, but share them the gospel and simply ask them the question, 
where are you with God? I'm, I'm, I'm good with God. What gives you confidence? You know, talk to me, friend. I don't want you to be scared of me as a pastor. You're not being graded right now. But share with me, what, what is it? You know, if you're talking to a friend about how you can be made right with God, and so many of those kind, sincere people look at me and say, you know what? I try to be a good person. I go to church. I love the Bible. I love Jesus. But what are you depending on? What are you depending on? Are you depending on yourself? Are you depending on your own works? Because if you're depending on your own works, you may see Jesus as good. You may see Jesus as an example. You may see Jesus as the wonder of all ethics. But if you're not depending on him, you're ultimately depending on your own record. And ultimately, we have to see that the law of God holds men accountable when they break the holy required standard of God. I tell that to you because it would be really depressing if we ended right now. We'd leave and we recognize that we have committed treason against a holy God. We're not morally neutral. Romans 1 says that rather than worship God, we have received what God has given and we have literally we've held it down. We, we've, we've pushed it down. We, we haven't worshiped God. We've worshiped the Create creation. We've not worshiped the creator. And the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness. And, and the problem is this. The law is a tutor that's to lead us to Christ. You see, the law becomes the greatest blessing and servant in your life when you finally realize, and when I finally realize, that the law is not a ladder that I climb in order to achieve some kind of standing with God, the law, no, the law condemns me and the law takes me by the hand and leads me to a jail cell. Where in that jail cell, if by the grace of God, I see how the spirit is working and as he reveals himself to me, I recognize in that cell that the only way of escape is the glorious gospel of Jesus. This morning, what are you depending on? Galatians chapter 3 says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. We see all of these in this first part. But then we get into something that is quite amazing. We get into this next section but you, but you, I love that conjunction because it's filled with so much meaning. In verse 21, notice, even Moses, you can see this in Deuteronomy 9, and, and he, the, the quotation seems to come out of the aspect when Moses came down the mountain and he saw that the people were committing idolatry, he was fearful because he understood the implications of the holiness of God. And so all of this seems to be involved. But, but look at verse 21. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But then verse 22, but you, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering. This is the wonder of the gospel. That conjunction, B-U-T, the, the word but in, in, in the Bible, Ephesians 2, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, the great love with which he loved us. Earlier, Andrew read Titus chapter 3, there's another wonderful conjunction in there. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But then he says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. I love that. It's like the transition here is remarkable. He's saying, look, but you have come to Mount Zion. 
And what he does now is he contrasts Sinai with Zion. And then now the descriptors are going to point to the realities of what is true to the person who's trusted in Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you've trusted in Jesus Christ, there's a reality that you may not even realize that is yours in Christ. Isn't that, I think, fellow Christians, isn't that the way so often we are that we lose sight of what is ours in Christ? Can you relate with me? I remember... I was thinking about this. Uh, man, this is the most wonderful time of the year because it's, it's basketball tournaments. March Madness. And I remember when I was about 17 or 16, I can't remember how old I was, 15, 16, or 17, me and my best friend, we, we got a chance to go with my dad to Atlanta back when the Omni was there. It was the first round of the NCAA tournament. There was a guy in the church, Randy Raider, Sean, and uh, he, uh, he, 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 he hooked us up. And he basically said, hey, I, I want you to go. I know a guy. I love it when somebody says, I know a guy. And, uh, and, and, and he, he took us, and we, we stayed on the 27th floor of the Hilton. And if you've been to the Hilton, if you go there today, the 27th floor requires like another kind of card. We were in a penthouse that Burt Reynolds stayed in. And it was huge. It was bigger than the downstairs of my house. It was amazing. I was in a penthouse at the Hilton at a basketball tournament. How much better can it get? And I went, and we got there, and I remember, like, we were hungry. And I remember me and uh, my friend Doug, we were like, hey, let's, uh, let's go get something to eat. And I said, you hungry? He said, yeah. So we, I, I said, Dad, we're going to go eat. He's like, be careful. It's crazy out there. So we went down. We got on the street down there, I guess it's Peachtree, and we found a McDonald's. We get back, and... And Randy's like, what are you doing? We're like, we're hungry. He's like, we got a buffet on the floor. The 27th floor is the towers. So we have a whole nother realm. We're, 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 in a, we're not in a regular room that's like, you know, 450 square feet. We're in a penthouse that's over 2,000 square feet. And we have food that's free. You don't pay for it. I had no idea what was actually mine. So much of the Christian life is, is submitting our life to the lordship of Christ in his word and submitting to how the spirit guides us into what actually is the reality for the Christian. You know, this morning, um, I, this is such good news. This is good news for preachers. This is good news for kids that have trusted Christ. This is good news for middle-aged adults. This is good news for old adults. This is good news for everyone in here to understand we have been brought into Mount Zion. And what Mount Sinai represented now should thrill us because, wow, look at what the grace of God has done for us. Look at how he describes Mount Zion. He describes it in such an amazing way. Um, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, there, there's so many things. we got to move quick here. Um, when he says you have come to, it's the same phrase that he's used throughout the book. That phrase you have come to is literally the same phrase that we've been reading, draw near. <laughs> In the Bible, there's this constant... Uh, We've experienced something, but we haven't experienced it fully yet. So a lot of people talk about it like it's an already but not yet kind of idea. It, it's the idea that a lot of these blessings are already ours, but we haven't tasted them in its fullness yet. We're already experiencing it. You go through these and, and they just jump off the page. The city of the living God. I was writing down different quotes out of different, uh, just looking at resources and trying to find the best descriptors of these actual phrases. And one said, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem is heaven itself. Coming to Christ is coming to heaven. The only way to come to heaven. When we come to Mount Zion, we come by grace to the city Abraham looked for. You remember in Ephesians, it talks about how Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and we now are seated with him in the heavenlies. There's a dimension and a reality of what it means to be in Christ that now we are already experiencing blessings. You remember chapter 1, verse 3? 
that we've experienced every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. And, and, and we've experienced that aspect, but how much more is to come? And then he says, the innumerable angels in festal gathering. Sometimes we really got to get our doctrine of angels correct. You know, there's a lot of weird things people think about angels. Everything from angels are the, you know, on Charmin tissues commercials which is a ridiculous way to think of an angel, all the way from that to thinking that when people die, they turn into angels. No, that's not actually true. But, but angels play a place. They are ministers. They are servants. And they are powerful beings. And what they represent is the glory of God. In Deuteronomy 33, he said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Amazing. In Daniel 7, verse 10, listen to how it describes the angels. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court said in judgment, and the books were opened. In the heavenly Jerusalem, there's a number you can't, you can't count, you know? There's a vast number of angels that are worshiping the Lord. And because of who we are in Jesus Christ and the grace that has pardoned our sin and the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to our account, account once we were nothing but sinners and enemies of God, we were condemned by Mount Sinai and the majesty and holiness of God, but we have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ, and now we have access, and now we are worshipers, and now we have access and are brought into heaven. <laughs> You keep going here. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. I was reading a lot of uh, different thoughts on this. Spurgeon says it like this. So although believers are by nature the children of wrath, even as others, yet after Christ has renewed them, they become the excellent of the earth. In whom should be all our delight? But the term firstborn has a second meaning. The firstborn under the old Mosaic economy were chosen by God for himself. He keeps going through this, and he's speaking of this remarkable picture that we now have been brought into the people of God. Our names are listed in the book of life. We are enrolled in heaven. I was thinking about this, and man, after being here almost 15 years, Man, so many of us have lost people that are dear to us, but they, I want, you to, I want you to have hope in this. This morning, even as we worship, we're reminded that they are enrolled in heaven. Isn't that good news? And those in Christ Jesus will see them again. We're going to see them again. The beauty is this. Under Sinai, we could never have hope of living with God in the afterlife. But through Zion and the goodness and the message and the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, those who trusted in Jesus and what he did at the cross have hope for a future. He keeps going. He says, and the God, the judge of all. Wow, we're going to see that in a second. What's remarkable is now we've been brought near with no need to fear and then he, he brings up, he mentioned the enrolled and the firstborn, but then he says, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And one commentator said it refers to the saints of the old and new covenants here portrayed as holy and as personally made perfect, which was the goal of Christ's work, though with their basically re-embodiment of the glorification of their body still to come at the final resurrection the beauty is the spirits of the righteous made perfect, absent from the body to be present with the Lord. He's saying, look, you've come into a dimension that you have to reflect on. You now are come to Mount Zion. It's not just future. You've already come. It's partial in the sense of all that you've experienced. You're going to experience more in the future. 
You're with those, the firstborn, who've been enrolled, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You're with the angels who are worshiping and ministering to the Lord. And then he says, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. We come to Jesus. One one commentator said, in the fullness of his beauty and glory as the mediator of a new covenant. Our Lord here is called by his redemptive name, Jesus, which he was given because he would save his people from their sins. When we come to Mount Zion, we come to our Savior, our Redeemer, our one and only mediator with the Father. And then he says, into the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What's fascinating is in verse 19, he mentions that the people didn't want to hear the voice of God. But when we get in verse 24 and in verse 25, we see that the people now can hear the voice of God and the speaking of Christ. Why? Because they're under a new age. They're under a new covenant. You see, the blood of Abel cries out a curse for vengeance, some say, but Jesus' blood brings forgiveness and atonement. What's the similarity? We're moving quick now, but this is where I want to wrap things up. We see this contrast. Sinai over here represents the law. It represents works. It represents man's inability to come to the standard of God. But Zion over here represents the new covenant. It represents all that Jesus has brought those who've trusted in him. Now, a similarity. What is the similarity? We look at this and we almost think, okay, the old and the new are so far apart, and they are in the blessings, but don't miss this. And and, and look back at uh, what he says, and we just read it in verse 23. We're brought into the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God. And what how's God referred to there? The judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. When we look at the judge of all, it's interesting because when you look at that word, how they used it in the Septuagint in Psalm 50, it says, the heavens declares his righteousness for God himself is judge. You can see it in Daniel 9 speaking about the fact that that people are brought up under a curse, under judgment. But how now can we see the similarity between the old covenant? God was judge at Sinai, he was holy and majestic. And yet now, even though we've been brought under the new covenant, God is still described as judge, but there's good news. Keep going. I'm going to wrap it up here in a second. In Hebrews 12, 28 and 29, look at what it says. We're going to hit this next week. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And then look what he says about God in verse 29. For our God is a consuming fire. You may be with us today and you're thinking, wait a minute, I thought God was only a consuming fire at Sinai. How can God still be a judge and how can God still be a consuming fire when we look at the description of the people under Mount Zion? Well, I'm glad you asked. Number three is the beauty of the gospel. We see a contrast, we see a similarity, but number three, we see a mediator. You see, God has not changed, God is holy, God is a consuming fire. If you go before him thinking that you can earn your way by your own works, you will be consumed. You will face the consequences of your sin eternally in hell. But friend, the message of Hebrews is that only through the substitutionary atonement of Christ, he has brought us near. He has enabled us to boldly enter the throne room of grace. We needed one who was divine, We needed one who represented us perfectly, and Christ Jesus became our holy, sacrificial substitute because we could not come before the holiness of God. And Jesus Christ represented us, one who was fully God and fully man, and took our place at the cross. 
He takes our place at the cross, and through his blood, we now have access. We no longer fear. We now come to Mount Zion, and we live out of the blessings of the new covenant. But God, how can God in his holiness, and how can God as a judge receive sinners? Because of the perfect sacrifice of his son. This morning, I pray that you would see, wait a minute, sometimes I think what happens is we we have a mindset, and and everyone in the room that's a Christian can can relate to this. You can go back to at least a a misunderstanding, a a wrong mindset that you had previously that God changed. And what I want to encourage you with this, if you're here today and you're thinking, I can make it, I can go to God later, I can figure this out, understand God is a consuming fire. He's a judge. You will not stand before him. It'll be a mockery to his presence to think that you can come before him in your own goodness and being a good old boy or a good old girl and just being good people. But the beauty of the gospel, friend, is that Jesus Christ has paid the price. That Jesus Christ is the suffering servant. He is the suffering substitute. And Jesus Christ now, holy God, the God-man, goes to the cross in our place. And by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we now have access before the God who is a consuming fire. Amen? We look at the book of Hebrews. I'm reminded of Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed For our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Notice that last phrase. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Romans 5 says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8 ought to thrill our hearts today. Romans 8, verse 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now we come to Mount Zion and we worship the holy, almighty judge, the God who's a consuming fire. But all of our sin was placed on Christ Jesus. And he is our righteousness. Therefore, we no longer fear his judgment, and we no longer fear in terror his holiness because Christ has brought us near through his blood that was shed on the cross. You may be here today and you're thinking, how do I call out to God? How do I call out to God? Because I'm looking at my life, and I'm honest this morning. I've never truly seen myself a sinner. I've never believed on Jesus. This is new to me, but I'm seeing the truth of it, and it's exciting me because I'm realizing that Jesus Christ can stand in my place, that Jesus Christ can bring me near. I think we can learn a lot from the man in Luke 18, the tax collector that became overwhelmed with his sin. And what did he say? But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I want to encourage you today that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The day you may be here and you're thinking, I've always thought I could be good enough. I've always thought I did enough church. I thought I was good enough. I was a deacon. I did this. I did that. I did this. I did that. The message of Hebrews is that there was one who came who was perfect, who was supreme, and we will die in our sins and be judged eternally apart from putting our hope and trust and belief and faith in him. So this morning, I want to leave you with this. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So as you think of Hebrews chapter 12, 18 through 24, think of the contrast, and it's big. A contrast of Sinai to Zion. A similarity, the God of the new covenant is still a God who is a judge. He's still a God who's a consuming fire, 
but because now by faith he's our mediator, he's not going to be the one who judges us because Christ Jesus has been judged for us. Christ Jesus took our place at the cross. It's through the mediator, it's through the substitute of Jesus Christ that we now can come and face a holy God because of the perfect work of Jesus. Amen? You bow your heads. Maybe you're with us this morning. You've never trusted Christ. You're facing the same predicament of those apart from the grace of God that didn't know the Lord at Sinai. This morning, I got good news. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Friend, our hope to face a holy God, our hope to face the judge is through the perfect righteousness and goodness of Jesus. That's our hope. And what the author of Hebrews is doing is he wants these precious believers to understand there is no better way. Understand who you are and what God has done for you in Christ. And then and only then can you know how to live in this world. Charlie's going to be to my right in the hallway right there. Maybe you're today you need to talk to somebody about the gospel. You don't feel like you know for certain if you understand salvation. He's available. I'm available up here. I'm available now. I'm available later after the service. But I pray today that everyone who leaves this room, that their hope and their trust and their dependence would be on Christ. I pray everyone in this room would literally relate to Zion and not Sinai. I pray that you wouldn't go, man, I am I'm horrified of God because if I get in his presence, he's going to consume me but I pray today you could say, no, I once would be one who would be judged eternally, but by his goodness, by his work, because Jesus is my high priest, I've been brought into Zion, into a whole new way of living, into being forgiven, restored, redeemed, and renewed. I have hope in the cross of Christ. Lord, as we close out this morning, I pray that everyone here, Lord, I pray their hope and their dependence is upon you. And Lord, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, you'd convict hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage those in Christ of the realities of what you've brought them to. And Lord, that they wouldn't live as if they had nothing. They wouldn't live as if there's no blessings that they've received. God, I pray that there'd be a humble gratitude of worship in our hearts as Christians today, that we would say, thank you, Lord, for the precious work of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand with